This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Season 4 of Origin Story. In each episode, we take a word, idea or figure from history, explain its origins and talk about how it influences political discourse today. I'm Dorian Linsky, author of 33 Revolutions Per Minute and the Ministry of Truth. Uh, And I'm Ian Dunt. And I remember when Origin Story was a mere twinkle in the eye of these two bald men. And now it's on its fourth season. I think we should be very impressed. Uh, Ian, we close season three with our first living subject, Elon Musk, and we're opening season four with our second, Jordan B. Peterson, Mm. um, Canadian psychologist, guru, best-selling author, (laughs) disciplinarian, uh, controversy magnet, (laughs) uh, etc. Why? I don't know, man. This was your idea. You t- you explained to was me it? why I've just spent weeks of my life reading was it this. My idea? Yeah, this is totally you. Okay, right. Okay, so here we go. Right. So <laughs> in January in January 2018, right? I, I'm quite obsessed with him, and I'll explain why later. In January 2018, when Peterson published his second book, Twelve Rules for Life, he was described by David Brooks in the New York Times as the most influential public intellectual in the Western world right now. Mm. And at the time, I thought. That's crazy. Mm. Um, But then I saw a claim recently where he was the first celebrity public intellectual since Noam Chomsky. And then I was like, well, like, is he? Like, this book sold between four and five million copies in English alone. Mm. Uh, You know, that. so who are you going to say? You're going to say Slavoj Zizek, you know, Dawkins, Naomi Klein. Like, he's probably, you know, in terms of sales, 4.5 million followers on Twitter and so on, like in terms of sort of scope and, and influence, then yeah, like maybe maybe he is. And if we're talking whether we like that or not. And he seems like somebody that is so present and yet he's, he's so weird. His story is so strange. His ideas are strange. Mm. And they resonate massively, right? So... We're talking, you know, we're sort of talking about ideas. Why do ideas sort of catch on? And to me, you know, I thought, okay, well, he's perhaps the Ayn Rand. He doesn't write novels. Obviously, mm-hmm. he does it in nonfiction form. But he has that kind of, of reach and influence. And I thought it was well worth unpacking. I've been following him for a few years. Um, but I still just thought, you know, I haven't read the books in great depth. I haven't. Um, there's so much I don't know. How are you feeling after a, you know a few days spent inside of his brain? I mean, it's fascinating. It's not, it's not boring, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, some That's of, true. I mean, yeah. some some of it is boring because his books are all like 
twice as long as they need to be. Yeah, I mean, arguably, I mean, you could probably do it in a third of the length. Yeah. You would just stop repeating and making the same point over and over and over again. Yeah, when someone says, oh, 12 rules for life, you're going to go, right, you've got a rule, then you explain it, and goes, oh, no. <laughs> oh, the digressions. Well, not just that. It's almost like he, he just won't use one sentence when 20 will yeah. suffice. So just it, these sort of short, sharp sentences that just go on and on, they're not really saying anything, and they've got this kind of sort of pomposity almost, this sort of self-importance to them as if you get a real sense of like there's a big lectern above you, you know, and, and here he is pontificating. Well, I mean, there's one, one thing I found very interesting about people in his space is that it runs totally counter to this idea that what people want is concision. Like we, we worry, right? We go, if we, we're running long on a podcast, we go, oh, maybe this should be a two-parter, right? Because people don't want to, you know, they want an hour and a half podcast, you know, like... He just goes on and on and on and on and on. And there's a funny anecdote in one of the profiles of him uh, doing one of his very long lectures. Um, and he does it without notes or whatever. And there are so many digressions that he only gets up to rule six. <laughs> like in, in maybe like three hours. Um, it's not people can self-help, and it is sort of self-help. But most self-help books are very kind of like... They're quick and shallow. Mm. And they almost suggest that, like, well, if you follow these guidelines, then you will have a happy life. Whereas Peterson is promising something which is like very dense and difficult. And, and, and because life is difficult. Because mm -hmm. as he says several times in his books, life, life is, is suffering, suffering. right? <laughs> and something about that is sort of fascinating if you are bemoaning the kind of the death of the public intellectual. It's like you would think if you had to create a public intellectual from scratch, you would have someone who was like very zippy, concise, uh, with a sense of humor mm. uh, and so on. And that's the way to reach people with big ideas. And he has like none of those qualities. And I wonder whether he's successful because of that, his, his, his intensity, his sort of earnestness, his length, mm. you know, the length, his verbosity, you know, rather than in spite of it. So we are going to, um, I don't think we can say to claim to be objective. No, can I think, be, no. But I think we are interested in why he uh, appeals. I mean, I think you could be objective in that you can just say about the things that you see in front of you. And so it doesn't mean that you don't have an opinion. It's not impartial. I mean, you come at it with an opinion. Yeah, I'm going to have some opinions. <laughs> yeah, no, that does not that does not surprise me. I can see it by the look on your face. I mean, I sort of feel it's it's a strange story, really. I mean, it, for a start, it, it's the story of someone who is doing terribly well while being, I think, very demonstrably terribly unwell. Mm. And you can see it in his life story and what happens to him. But you also see it in the text. Oh, yeah. Like almost as soon as you open that book up, you're like, this is not the product of someone who's doing okay. Like this is someone who feels like they're really clinging on to any sense of positivity or meaning in life or just, you almost get the sense of him of like, there's just a void and the void is directly behind him. And every moment he's trying to construct bits of road so he can get away from it. You know, he's, he feels like a desperate man hanging on on the very edge. And then there's this other part, which I think it, it's this really strange sort of um, almost mirror image. It's like his actual intellectual contribution in the end, I think, is minimal, bordering on the non-existent. But the lesson to be learned from him by specifically progressives in the center left is, I think, deeply profound. 
Oh. Like it's really important, not, not so much in the content, but in the reaction to him. Sure. There is something about men and boys, especially in the current world and really the sort of neoliberal world from the 70s onwards, that he speaks to and that the fact that people are so open to it indicates that, that something really important is happening there. And so I think it's got those two things well, going a, on at the same time. Well, here's a phenomenon. Phenomena are always interesting, you know, whether it is a, it's a record or a novel or a movie or a nonfiction book. It's like something has happened here yes. to make this as big as it is. You know, what is it? Mm. Uh, now, obviously, we can't cite the OED this time. No. He has spawned no words. Uh, but I, I do have a disclosure to make up He top. has spawned no words is a fantastic <laughs> sentence, by the way. I mean, no, 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 wait, so I'm not, it's not a criticism. <laughs> um, in February 2018, The Guardian commissioned me to write a profile of Peterson, um, which I, I read back. It was like rather critical, but, but not, I'd say, a hatchet job. No, it wasn't a hatchet job at all. I think then, it was very good. Yeah, Peterson himself tweeted it out with this message. Have you seen this message? No. Okay. The most effective purveyor of sly half-truth, subtle stiletto in the back innuendo, and faux compassion victim narrative that I've yet encountered. Congratulations, Dorian Linsky. That's quite an accomplishment. Now... Given the recent fuss about critical reviews being cherry-picked for the nicest lines and being used as blurbs on the paperback for his last book, Beyond Order, mm -hmm. um, I thought that I could use this on my next book and it would be the most effective <laughs> purveyor, dot, 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 that I have yet encountered. Congratulations, Dorian Linsky. That's quite an accomplishment. Jordan B. Peterson. <laughs> so, like, he's... I, w I actually really enjoyed that. I was like, oh, so yeah. you lo you're not saying you don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's a kind of flattery there. So ever since the article, I have been receiving sporadically angry emails from Peterson fans, all men. Um, Are they um, particularly sort of vicious or is it? No. It, no. Okay. Well, some. But what's interesting is most of them are very earnest and wounded. You know, they're not just abusive trolls like I think, you know, Trump fans are, right? Mm. And they really generally seem horrified that I would be so mean to this to this wonderful man. Huh. The kind of, what you're talking about, his, his appeal, right? It's perhaps summed up by the title of a book that I haven't read. The British Library does not have a, a copy and I wasn't going to buy oh, one. Wow. Called uh, Savage Messiah, How Jordan Peterson <laughs> is Saving Western Civilization. So like, right, he, you know, his fans like, his fans are like, this was a good read, right? They're like. <laughs> Savage Messiah sounds like a street drug in a shit cyberpunk novel. Uh, you know, or like, um, or like a metal band, like a Finnish metal band yes, on Eurovision. Yes. <laughs> uh, so as a result, since then, I have followed his career very closely. So we're going to structure this episode a little bit differently. I'm going to handle most of the biography and you are going to unpack his two bestsellers, 12 Rules for Life and 2021's Beyond Order, More Rules for Life. And then we're going to talk about like why he's so popular, right? Sure. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Okay. So it's an interesting story mm -hmm. how he gets there. So Jordan Burnt with an E, Peterson. Born on 12th of June 1962 in Fairview, Alberta, a small town in Canada's most conservative province. It's quiet and boring and brutally cold. Um, his upbringing is quite nice. The eldest of three kids, dad is a school teacher, his mum is a college librarian. Uh, as you can imagine from his books, he is a bookish child uh, mm. who skips a year at school and becomes the youngest and smallest boy in his class, which he, he talks about quite a lot. Um, and does sort of explain some of his views on like sort of male power and the importance of being like a big tough man mm -hmm. um 
Now, when he's 12, he's attending confirmation classes. His parents are sort of, they're not that religious, but it's sort of the thing that you do. Like the way my parents would take me to church. Right, but, right. Know, didn't really talk about religion much. Um, he's studying the Bible and decides that it's all bullshit. <laughs> he writes uh, in Maps for Meaning, mm. his first book for 1999, the best bit of which is the kind of preface, prologue, where um, it is a lot of autobiography. He goes, religion was for the ignorant, weak, and superstitious. I stopped attending church and joined the modern world. I turned in consequence to dreams of political utopia and personal power. Oh, wow, Jesus Christ. Which is, I mean, I also thought that, the, you know, religion was, was bullshit. I, I don't think I did turn to that. Mm. Well, so you say. So <laughs> this is, uh, this podcast is my path to political utopia and personal power, <laughs> playing the long game. <laughs> Um, Peace and school librarian is Sandy Notley, whose husband, Grant Notley, leads the New Democratic Party, hmm. big left-leaning party. Hmm. And their daughter, Rachel, actually ends up becoming the NDP's first and only premier of Alberta many years later. Um, Sandy introduces Peterson, apparently, to writers such as Orwell, Solzhenitsyn, and Ayn Rand, which is funny because he quotes the first two a lot, but never really mentions Rand. No. I wonder whether it's because it might sort of label him in a way that he doesn't want, even though I think in a lot of ways he does remind me of Rand. I don't think he would survive that comparison for very long because for all of her flaws, well, then to be honest, that's the case for all three of the people you've just mentioned. Right. You know, I mean, there's a point where Orwell comes up in one of those books, you know, like, oh, for heaven's sake, don't do that. Don't quote like, You know, you've got a very rambling, yeah. vague book here. And if you just start quoting from someone who was extremely precise in their argument and concise in their language, it just makes you look even worse than you do in the first place. So I sort of think, yeah, stay away from those names as much as possible, really. Uh, so through Sandy, he starts volunteering for the NDP, runs for the school elections when he's 14, uh, says that he wants to be prime minister one day. <laughs> okay. Now, he has described this as his socialist phase, although the NDP is, is really social democratic, like Canadian listeners may correct me on this, but sort of, you know, as socialist as the Labour Party. Right, right. Broadly, it's not like he, he joined like a you know, the socialist workers or something. No, I mean, we're going to come on to this in a moment, aren't we? But I mean, the thing is, he doesn't actually know what any of these words no, mean. No, so. he does not. So as an undergraduate, this is, I love this bit. As an under, he studies political science, gets into student politics, but he can't stand the other NDP people. <laughs> and he goes, I did not admire many of the individuals who believe the same things I did. This additional complication furthered my existential confusion. <laughs> now, if, Everybody that found student politicians annoying, like the left would not exist. Like that's just, yeah, that's, that's part of the deal. Um, he reads um, Orwell's The Road to Wigan Pier and has an epiphany. As he paraphrases, socialist ideology served to mask resentment and hatred bred by failure. Now, this is not what Orwell is actually saying. Um, and this is what really first alerted me back in 2018 to the fact that maybe like he wasn't like legit because mm. um, all thought socialism was essential, but that many socialists were unappealing advocates. And right. it was really important to have a better version of socialism if you wanted, you know, the masses to to get on board and remain a socialist the rest of his life. But his kind of socialist. Mm -hmm. So he was not saying they were all again like bitter losers. So anyway, now he's disillusioned with religion and politics. So he decides psychology could be the answer because he, he wants to know most of all, and this is a completely valid thing to want to know, why people believe what they believe, especially those beliefs that lead to evil acts, right? Mm. Now, he seems to think nobody has thought about this before. 
So he goes, I think in 12 Rules, just exactly what happened in the 20th century anyway, he asks, meaning totalitarianism. No one had answered those questions as far as I could tell. Oh, wow. Like Descartes, I was plagued with doubt. <laughs> Which is, I mean, I'm often plagued with doubt, but I, I know I don't think I'm Descartes. It's again, do you really want to use that name and right. in any way, shape or form? Yeah. So anyway, regular listeners to this podcast will know from the nuclear war episodes that in 983 and 984, when Peterson was in his early 20s and studying psychology, was sort of the peak of nuclear angst. Mm -hmm. um, everybody was worried about war. Nobody, perhaps more worried than Jordan B. Peterson, who became very depressed, uh, suicidal to some extent, and plagued by apocalyptic nightmares about Fairview, Alberta, in radioactive ruins. Uh, he writes, I thought about the suicidal and murderous preparation of that war every minute of every day from the moment I woke up until the second I went to bed. But then he also says that he had nightmares. So even after he went to bed, he was thinking about it. Mm -hmm. It's pretty much 24-7 mm -hmm. nuclear holocaust for Jordan B. Do you, um, do you believe that? No. I mean, of course he didn't think about it every minute of every day. He's no, no, he yeah. was obviously He was obviously unhealthily obsessed with it. Like what I found interesting, if you took, bring out Rand and Solzhenitsyn, right? Rand, regular listeners will know, um, you know, fled Soviet Russia. Mm -hmm. Her family were kind of ruined by communism. She had a real reason to kind of you know, to hate them. Sosanism was in the gulag. Mm. Um, a lot of the people who are, are, are so deeply obsessed with totalitarianism and, you know, that, that sort of manifestation of, of evil, if you want to put it that way, you know, had a real reason for it. He seems to have sort of latched onto it. It was totally legitimate to be worried about nuclear war, but it seems to have led him into this path of immersing himself in, like, the worst stuff. Like, in one of his books, he says he had a... a um, a patient, because he was a clinical psychologist for a long time, uh, he was really worried about something. He wanted her to get some perspective. And so he makes her read a book about the rape of Nanking. <laughs> you know what I mean? He's, it's really like doom reading, mm -hmm. like read about the worst shit in the world. Now, he becomes obsessed with Solzhenitsyn's line that the line between good and evil runs through every human heart, mm -hmm. including his own. So he's very interested in his own capacity for being a wrong'un. Um, an alarming confession about his college years. At some point during the lecture, I would unfailingly feel the urge to stab the point of my pen into the neck of the person in front of me. What the fuck? <laughs> I, don't know, I love the way that's just trotted out as an aside, right. love, by the way. Yeah. I don't know if he th this is meant to be relatable. He thinks this is right, but I don't know. <laughs> I might have thought of flicking their ears. Much later, he told the Toronto Star, and I don't know when the period he's describing here, but he went, I've spent some time thinking about some very dark things, and I thought for a good while about what I would do if I was a terrorist. There are so many things you could do that would be so destructive. Now, you're like, you don't need to give any examples, Jordan. <laughs> but he does. I thought, take a tanker of gasoline and fill the sewers with it. It would be easy. One match. What? <laughs> what and again, not content with his kind of like... <laughs> Pinpoint reign of terror. He's, he's looking planning terrorist outrages. So all, he brings all this up in a kind mm. of like, well, look, everybody should be aware of the capacity for violence and evil in their own heart. Mm. But he's like weirdly precise. Yes. Plus, it doesn't help me become more aware of the capacity for evil in my own heart if you start saying things that I have never thought or would never think in my whole life, like, I'm going to stab that bloke in the neck with a pen. But it's weird because it reminds me a little bit in, in the early bits of 1984. 
Winston Smith is fantasizing about some really dark, violent yes, actions. Yes, yes, yes. Caving in his, you know, his first wife's head with a rock. And and my interpretation of that was we were meant to be thinking, like Winston doesn't realize, Winston's going, you know, it is, guys. And, mm. you know, we're meant to be thinking, wow, you're really, you've really been fucked up mm-hmm. by yeah, the yeah. system in which you live. And so here, there is this sense of like, if this was a fictional character, you would see what the author was doing. Yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> like, but it's him. And that's the closest you got to George Orwell, Mr. Peterson. <laughs> that's great. You're Winston Smith with a rock. <laughs> So let's just take a moment to send a shout out to our lovely, lovely Patreon backers. Uh, Thank you for supporting us guys and keeping us going in the period in between seasons. In particular this week, thanks to Stuart Noble, Kit Allwinter, Derek Smith, Judy Gannon and Ryan Dolan. We salute you. To find out more about subscribing to Origin Story, click the link in the show notes. So he gets another BA in psychology, then a PhD in clinical psychology from McGill uh, University in Montreal in 91. In 1989, he marries his childhood friend slash sweetheart, Tammy Roberts. In 1993, they have a daughter, Michaela, named after Mikhail Gorbachev, of course. <laughs> wow. um, he also starts collecting vast amounts of Soviet propaganda to hang on his walls as a daily reminder of the horrors of communism. Although he does quite like the art. He's quite interesting on that. Yeah, he does like the art. But also even, you know, would you really just cover your entire house in huge paintings of a thing to remind yourself of the horror of it? Like, I feel like I'm not a big fan of Soviet communism, you know, but I feel like I can keep that in my head without covering the entirety of my flat with pictures of Well, there's the idea of sort of just like, you know, you have to read Mein Kampf to understand the evils of Nazism. It's like, you don't have to read it. I also wouldn't want to go to someone's house and they've got paintings of Hitler everywhere. And it's hard to remind myself about the evils of fascism and be like, well, that's fine, mate, but I'm going to go somewhere else. Yeah, so it's odd. But he's actually weirdly interesting on like, you know, what he perceives as the tussle between the artistic impulse and the propagandic impulse. Mm -hmm. So he sort of Mm -hmm. does like this stuff. He's not just holding it up Mm -hmm. and going like, Mm -hmm. like a painting of Hitler. It's not like that. It's a bit more complicated. But it still seems a bit... It's unusual. Yeah. It's eccentric. From 92 to 98, he teaches psychology at Harvard, then moves to the University of Toronto, where he publishes his first book, Maps of Meaning, The Architecture of Belief, in 1999. Which you have read. Uh, I managed to dodge this one, and I sort of know that this this first one, I mean, it took him years and years, right? And it's this big... He started writing in 85. Right. Okay. I mean, that's supposed to be the complete sort of description and formulation of his theory. yeah. yeah. Is it? Okay, so when I say read it, <laughs> uh, and Martin Amos is the information, there's an experimental novel so difficult that nobody can get past the first few pages without experiencing like a mysterious ailment. Um, and that's a bit how I felt. It's, it's like, it's super long. It's sort of diffuse and repetitive, which uh-huh. is part of his style. Yeah, Only yeah, this seems yeah, like yeah. twice as long. It doesn't appear to have been edited at all. <laughs> now, I think in some ways, okay, so his guiding stars here are Carl Jung, mm-hmm. psychologist interested in mythic archetypes, and Joseph Campbell, author of The Hero with a Thousand Faces. So these are the two, like, two of the big guys in the field of comparative mythology. Now, Peterson does two things that I'm not saying he is a crank, but he does two things that cranks really like. <laughs> One is spend more than a decade developing an overarching theory about the way the world works. <laughs> and 
Two is comparative mythology, <laughs> which always involves like leaving out the stuff that doesn't work because in comparative mythology, you're trying to go, well, like, if you look at the Bible and Mesopotamian myths and, and all these different mm -hmm. myths, they all tell the same story. There's a truth here, ancient mm -hmm. truth. Yeah. Um, but as, as, as other people have pointed out, Chinese mythology doesn't have those patterns, mm -hmm. these universal patterns. So he just like ignores that. So it's not really human nature. You know, mm -hmm. it's like, so for example, matriarchal societies don't figure. Mm -hmm. um, this is, I mean, exactly the kind of stuff that we would talk about during the conspiracy theory episode, right? right? It's like, look at the connections, right? right? And you can find them as long as you ignore everything else. Which is super exciting, but quite crankish. Um, but you do get the basic framework for his later books. There is order, which is masculine, and mm -hmm. chaos, which is feminine. Life is a painful struggle to find value and meaning. Uh, between these two forces to sort of balance them. In the absence of God, the stories from the Bible and these other religious myths provide essential ancient wisdom that tells us how to live, right? A nice lie is salvaging psychological truths about the world from the rubble of religion. Because there's some Nietzsche in here as well. A lot of Nietzsche in, in there. Um, but, you know, I didn't read it line by line. Um, <laughs> He makes the claim that there was no notion of objective reality until Isaac Newton. Oh, wow. What on earth? Which is, so sure, you know, the Enlightenment means that kind of religious explanations for things have sort of become gradually replaced by scientific explanations. Mm. Um, doesn't mean that nobody believed in objective reality. Mm. Like Hippocrates developing medicine was observing thing and trying to develop medicine on a kind of pragmatic, we came across this in the atheist uh, episode, he, he was, you know, it, it wasn't like everybody just thought, well, I guess it's the gods. Yeah. Like, of course, there was objective reality. So I thought, huh. And I struggle in this book, as with all his books, is how he's seen as a champion of rationality, right? Of hard facts. Mm. But he's deeply into mysticism, like profoundly into mysticism. And one critic, Johanna Thomas Kaur, called him the Jim Morrison of conservatism, mm -hmm. which I really liked, <laughs> is that he's allowing people to touch the mythic and the sacred. And, you know, Joseph Campbell is still is still pretty popular. Mm -hmm. Like his ideas and this idea that stories tell us something fundamental and true and that we can live by them. And with him, it's the it's it's the hero's journey. It is. I think that you're you're reaching there to the secret source, actually. That there's something um by having these dabbles of like the way he talks about Christianity is really about this kind of like this this over millennia this cumulative collective human impartation of knowledge it's in these really grand mystical terms so what he gives himself a greater sense of importance to the intellectual arguments by kind of sprinkling the mysticism over them but then when he goes to the self-help stuff it becomes really interesting i think because what you're sort of saying to people most of the self-help advice that he gives is banal to the point of entering a coma. You know, I mean, it's basically stand up straight, tidy your room, you know, take one day at a time. The happiness is in the doing, not the having. I mean, you yeah. could write it in a fucking Hallmarks card. And yet, because it's got this kind of religious, mystical, ancient right. sort of echo around it, it feels like if you were to take it up, if, if that is speaking to you at that moment, that you are then connecting to the sort of eons past sort of wisdom that gives your life a greater sense of meaning than if it was just in a Hallmark's card. And there is an effect that I don't know if he is intentional. It could very well be unintentional, where it's possible 
to write a book which involves a lot of intellectual history, right? You wrote how to be a liberal, mm -hmm. right? A lot of stuff there. But there was a sense that you were trying to is help. Your, is that your formal review? A lot of stuff A there. lot of stuff there. That's yeah. why you didn't ask me for a blurb. It's just, just got a lot of stuff there. A lot going on. Um, yeah, but, you know, there are ways of doing that which make things very clear and understandable. And you just mm -hmm. go, well, here was this thinker and this is largely what he thought, whatever. But the way that he kind of like moves around is so dense that it's very hard to sort of, you can't really argue with him. It's like, you know, it's, you, do I know, you know, do I know enough about Nietzsche and Mesopotamian <laughs> mythology and Kierkegaard and sort of to, to, to sort of go, oh, you know, no, that's not true. So sometimes when something comes up where you just go, oh, I know that's not true. Mm -hmm. So he sort of overwhelms and he, he continues to overwhelm in his bestsellers. That's what surprised me. I heard that, that, that they were sort of a condensed, 12 Rules was like a condensed version of Maps of Meaning. Maps of Meaning for people who, who could physically actually read it from start to finish. <laughs> But there's a lot in common with it. Mm -hmm. It's just that if you thought that these were uh, a little baggy, <laughs> check out check out maps. You know what? I don't think I will. Okay. So, nor did many other people. So, maps of meaning had seemingly no reviews and about 500 sales. Oof. But Peterson turned it into a very successful lecture series for undergraduates. And ended up screening the lecture series on a local TV station, had a bit of a champion at the local TV station. In 2004, then you know, YouTube is launched. I can't remember when he set up his YouTube channel, but you know, th th this is the beginning of mm -hmm. him becoming, what he realized is the book was the wrong way of doing it. it actually, maybe um, his presence, which does not work for me, mm -hmm. um, is a far more effective vehicle than his prose, because he 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 does have a certain weird charisma, right, as a broadcaster. I think he 100% does. It's it's odd because he's very uncharismatic on the page. The writing is really quite dead. I mean, I'm sure, look, it seems a bit absurd to criticise the writing of a book that sells millions and millions of, of copies. It's just, it's not well written. The prose is very dead. But I think on screen, there is a sort of vulnerability that comes from what appears to be and could well be authenticity. So he seems as if he's listening to the point that's being made. Right. He seems as if he thinks about it. He would often, I mean, he says things that are completely, he often says, oh, I'm very, very precise with my language, whereas just a minute ago, he's reversing back on something oh, he yeah, previously yeah. said. But nevertheless, he looks like he's genuinely engaged in what's happening. And because he, the seriousness combined with these flashes of sort of smiling, I think give him... Yeah, this vulnerability. There's, I've been thinking this recently quite a bit because I thought the same thing about Elon Musk, actually, when watching videos of him standing up and talking to people, that he seems very vulnerable. And that paradoxically, we think of charisma as the, mm. you know, I don't know, Hitler, you know, the big sort of like, you know, rampaging certainty. And actually, I think a, a bit of vulnerability combined with a sort of real scattergun effect of stuff that sounds cleverer than what you know mm. is a really seductive presence on a screen. And I think he certainly has it and demonstrably has it. He's a, he's a very, for someone that talks so much about the past, yeah. actually his success is based on deploying the technology of the present. He's very, and he talks, he can talk for like, you know, like these, these three hours for like with no notes or whatever. Like yeah. he's a very, yeah. extremely sort of fluent and agile talker. Sounds like Kermit with a, sore throat, but he he knows that he sounds like Cameron with a sore throat. Mm -hmm. he has, mm -hmm. This is not a diss. He's made this joke himself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can't not know it, right? <laughs> um, and I think because he's has got this sort of Midwestern 
prairie kind of style as well. All this dam and bloody and bucko. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. There's something kind of a suggestion of sort of like earthiness. Mm. He's a professor, like the prairie professor. Which is odd because he's quite urbane. Yeah, but there's something about, you know, the bucko and the swearing. Yes, yes. It's a very, it's very effective. Um, and It's the kind of swearing that you would imagine like Superman's dad would do. Exactly. Mm. Similar kind of, mm. some kind of background. Um, and by all accounts, he's a really inspirational teacher. Yeah, yeah. Uh, many students claim he changed their lives. Um, while former colleague Bernard Schiff, who helped him get the job at the University of Toronto, but later regretted it, uh, described him as a preacher more than a teacher. And he, first he was very impressed by this, mm. and then he became to find this mm. rather, rather problematic. But what I think, if you look at the era, right? So Mazzamini comes out in 1999, early noughties. He's taken off. And I wonder whether like his intense sort of seriousness, and like I said, the, this kind of real you know, intellectual nutrition that he appears to be offering is like just really appealing to people. They're just like, I need to know. And you're talking about after the, you know, after 9-11 as well. And maybe there's just people that are like, we've had this period where maybe we haven't had enough of this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we, and we, and you know, we've got like, we've got some big questions. He seems to be asking big questions and, and giving you big answers. Um, builds a following on YouTube, launches a self-help program called the Self-Authoring Suite. Which again is very Ayn Rand. Yes. Yes, exactly. Like, uh, I think we decided that we, he's not a grifter, but he's very entrepreneurial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I don't think he's a grifter. I mean, because he means it, right? Suggests that he doesn't mean it and doesn't believe in yeah. it. And I think that he does. He just, you know. yeah, see, why make money out of the things that you believe? Mm. He's practicing clinical psychologist working with patients. Um, I mean, I don't know because I haven't actually read independent reporting, you know, if people are talking to it, like, how was he? Yeah. From his own books, you'd think he was. Amazing. Well, sort of. I, I mean, there's I a, there's a couple of bits there where I'm like, well, really? I mean, there's one bit where a sort of patient, come, he, he accounts a story of a woman who comes in and says she's been repeatedly raped on, on things. And his account of his internal monologue oh. saying, you know, you're this mad, a swirling agent of chaos. You don't know who you are. And I'm just like, Jesus Christ, man. Like, this is but it, it's not great. It's a work. Yeah. Well, other moments he seems genuinely, obviously quite thoughtful. And, and he has occasional moments where he makes the argument for listening. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Which are very strong and, and actually some of the most insightful things he has to say. But there were there were enough alarm bells there for me when I heard about some of the sessions he'd had that I thought, I don't know, man, if I knew someone that was in trouble, <laughs> I wouldn't send them to go have counselling with Jordan Peterson. Well, he sums, up his, he sums up his style. His advice is grow the hell up, accept some responsibility, live an honourable life. Mm. Which in itself, again, like... Uh. No, not not bad. I mean, you wouldn't charge by the hour for it. But, <laughs> you know, I, no, no I'm, I'm being mean. Like, um, so so you know, there aren't loads of stories about him being like a bad. No, that's a hundred percent true. And you would have thought that they would have come out by the stage of totally were, right. Yeah. So anyway, things start to kick off for him because he's he's got a decent career, I'd say, at this point. But it all starts to kick off in 2012 when he turns 50. He loves the internet message board Quora, mm-hmm. where um, you can ask and answer questions about anything. You know, I'm normally on there going like, why is my coffee maker not working? Yes, that is basically the, the core dynamic yeah. that I use. Some people on there are just like, what is the point of life in a meaningless, <laughs> cold universe? Um, it's going to an internet forum to answer. Yeah, so he answers one of them with 42 rules for life, which go viral and lead to a book deal. Uh, well, obviously, somebody wisely suggested, can we can we bring that number down a bit? Um <laughs> And he's actually interviewed in 2013 with his psychologist hat on for Malcolm Gladwell's book, David and Goliath. Mm-hmm. But because nobody really noticed at the time, he's just like some guy from some Canada. Then he becomes suddenly famous. 
right, September 2016, and he releases a very angry video called Professor Against Political Correctness. Or should I rather say a series of three one-hour videos? Of course, of right. course. So at the time, the government, Canadian government, is trying to pass C-16, a law which extends anti-discrimination protections to trans people. Uh, Peterson, among many other things in this long video series, claims that he could go to jail for using the wrong pronouns. Uh, he says, I know something about the way that totalitarian, authoritarian political states develop, and I can't help but think I'm seeing a fair bit of that right now. Just to be clear, he doesn't know very much about how they develop, and he wasn't seeing it right then. No. Now, the Lord doesn't mention pronouns, and you can't go to jail for just that. Um, C-16 passed in 2017, and uh, nobody's gone to jail <laughs> using the wrong pronouns. <laughs> Including him. Yeah. Uh, Peterson, as some, some point out, there's some really good writing on this. Peterson was already subject to the university code of conduct, not actually the one... It was, C-16 was less relevant. Right. Um, it was not a threat to him. Plus, he was on sabbatical at the time, so not even teaching. <laughs> Didn't even have any students in the classroom. <laughs> so the real issue here seems to be that he, he doesn't believe in gender identity, and he refuses on principle to go along with ideas he doesn't believe in. So listen to the way this builds, right? Mm-hmm. It's like a piece of music. I don't recognize another person's right to determine what pronouns I use to address them. I think they're connected to an underground apparatus of radical left political motivations. I think uttering those words makes me a tool of those motivations. And I'm going to try and be a tool of my own motivations as clearly as I can articulate them and not the mouthpiece of some murderous ideology. Oh, fucking hell. It really escalated very quickly. So you've got from like anti-discrimination law Mm. to murderous ideology, Mm. by which presumably he means... Like Marxism, mm-hmm. which I don't think says anything about trans people. Um, <laughs> Marx but, didn't really have any particular views on that. Not, I don't think there wasn't like a critique of the trans. Yeah, it wasn't like you know, it wasn't on the cover of Capital. Karl Marx pronouns <laughs> he him. <laughs> not a concern. Uh, it's a long book, so he had room to mention it if he'd wanted to. He did. Uh, the thing is, everything leads to the gulag with Peterson. His worldview is essentially... Which, by the way, done. we keep on finding this same uh, dynamic. Oh, right, right, yeah. yeah. it's the neoliberal with Ayn Rand yeah. over and over. It's the same thing. It's like the slippery slope case. It's like every minute example of something must lead to the worst possible conceivable outcome. But it's interesting that with Rand and Hayek, you're really talking about this in the post-war era, you know, and you're talking about this when Stalin is still running things. Yeah, it's they inter- can justify themselves. It's yeah. interesting yeah. that Peterson, born in 62, yes. gets really into this, and he's almost like, oh, I wish I could have been a, wish I could have been intellectual in 1948. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Helping to found neoliberalism, neoconservatism, whatever. You know, he's not an ex-Trotskyite, but he's an ex-social democrat. So like, he'd have been great, mm-hmm. really fitted right in. Um, but he's sort of conspiratorial. We'll get more into his ideas on how the left works later. Um, he's conspiratorial and like, apocalyptic, essentially. Mm-hmm. So in mm-hmm. this article, it's a very interesting article where Bernard Schiff, his former colleague, He's clearly like, I've held spawn a monster here, right? Um, It's a little maybe overheated. um, But he says that he rang Peterson up after this controversy, the C-16 controversy, and was like, what's going on? Mm. Aren't you overdoing this? Mm. And Peterson responds, Tammy, his wife, had a dream, and sometimes her dreams are prophetic. She dreamed that it was five minutes to midnight. Right. Okay. So it used to be nuclear war. And now it's like pronouns and the whole radical Marxist apparatus behind sure, them, right? Sure. That's going to bring about the end of the world. It's a good moment to, to sort of mention that, that, that dreams come up quite a lot with him. 
Oh, right, yeah. So, I mean, in the sort of opening pages of 12 Rules, he talks about this dream he has of sort of being held above a cathedral. He's kind of like this Christ figure. Yeah. You know, it's a very Christ-like. Well, it's, it's, well I mean, I guess if you're a psychologist and you're really into Jung. Yeah, you know what, if you're into Jung, you're, you're going to do this. Yeah. Yeah, you know. I mean, and even, and even in what's annoyingly and pompously called the overture to the second book, which is in fact an introduction, he has the same thing about talking these very vivid dreams that he has. And you do get that sense that quite a bit of his behavior may be based on coming to very firm conclusions on the back of either his dreams or those of the people around him. Yes, because dreams are myths and myths are true. And I mean, like, we will get into this with the, with the books. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so he, there's, a, there's a real backlash, serious backlash. And the, yeah, the protests are pretty fierce. Yeah. Right. And as always is the case here, as you just think, maybe if the protests hadn't been quite so... Yeah. Fears he wouldn't have become sort of more radical, and who knows? Uh, conservatives embrace him as a free speech culture warrior because he's not another uh, just gobshite on YouTube. He is a professor, mm -hmm. and he's read a lot of books. Um, so he appears on Joe Rogan's podcast. Mm. Big crossover moment. There's a funny description of him uh, in a debate about C16 in a Toronto Live profile. Uh, of him on style. Picture a middle-aged Clint Eastwood in a remake of Dead Poet Society. Oh, very good. Isn't that That's good? That's very good. Yeah, very good. So his video is getting tens of millions of views. Apparently in 2017, 2018, just before the book comes out, he's earning um, what works out to almost a million dollars a year. Jesus Christ. On Patreon. Before the book comes out. Before the point the book comes out, people are going oh, no. like 80 grand a month from Patreon. Um, I just want you to hear this, patron subscribers. This is the kind of level that we expect yeah, for, you know, really reasonable, isn't the world nuanced commentary rather than us screaming our minds off about laws that don't exist. But it's kind of interesting that this is what makes him so famous. You know, it's, it's another role. And I did wonder, can you be an academic and a psychologist and a self-help guy and a culture warrior Without those roles, kind of clashing. Because the trouble, the trouble surely is the last part. Because to have any kind of genuine assessment of culture war, as hopefully we did in the mm. culture war episode, mm. you know, is to engage in a degree of complexity about different sort of levels of material wealth, different ideas, sort of different religious outlooks, different racial histories, and to try and grapple with them honestly in terms of the data, but also in terms of the values that people hold. If it's just, I plant my flag here and do the fight, 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 it's really hard to see, whether you're in the US or Canada or the UK or anywhere else, it's really hard to see how you would maintain any kind of academic rigor to that position, because it is is not really a valid intellectual position to hold. No, I mean, it's that, I mean, and this is why, of course, the book was so controversial when it came out. Now, there's one more incident to tuck into, which, which coincides, I think this was January or maybe early February 2018, sits for a notorious half-hour interview with Kathy Newman on Channel 4 News, which has now been seen 45 million times. My God, man. So that must be, I mean, that must be the most viewed interview in Channel 4 News I, history. I would, like. I would imagine it is. And that's why The Guardian asked me to write about him. That's why mm -hmm. he became famous in the UK. Um, did you see that interview at the time? Or did you watch it? I didn't watch all of it at the time. I saw little clips. I remembered hearing from you, actually, as we were recording Romaniacs, I think, once, of you saying, actually, this guy's a little bit different, kind of potentially more dangerous on that wing of things because... He's a bit more unusual. He's got a bit more of a brain, you know, needs watching. And I remember in the wake of that interview at sort of public events, I found that people started to start asking me about him. 
Two ah. things, weirdly enough, always women actually would sort of put that and go like, "Are you are you keeping up on that stuff? You know, what do you think about it?" And often in quite with quite a positive bent. And you know, the kind of events that I do is typically a bunch of quite liberal centrist people, frankly. You That's know, so his name started to come up, and I, so you could really tell that the interview was a moment. I hadn't watched it all the way through until doing the research for this. Okay, because she does blow it. She starts off okay, but I think what she does is makes a sort of a series of mistakes. Yes. Paraphrasing his thoughts back to him, but actually getting them wrong. And then when that sort of doesn't work, just going, aren't you really divisive? Because it's something very specific about the gender pay gap. And then it turns out to be, and then she's going, well, aren't you just terrible? And then there's a bit where she just literally falls silent, which is the interviewer's nightmare. Mm. And he goes, ha, gotcha. <laughs> That's and more of your down at home charm, isn't it? But what is also weird is he's two things that he is not anymore if you watch him on video he's unflappable and he's like smiles yes he's like humorous he's actually quite relaxed he's quite relaxed he's he's like and i thought at that time that's why i think i got uh, maybe i didn't understand in the piece i didn't understand like how angry he is because he just comes over as like calm rational normal mm. i didn't get his eccentricity from that i didn't get his anger from that mm. quite data driven yeah, yeah, just well, you know, the, the studies show, blah, 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 blah. You know, it's a brilliant performance. And yet, if you look at him now, talking straight to camera, sort of moist-eyed, threatening to thump people, yeah. you're like, well, if he'd come across like that with Kathy Newman, she would have just gone, well, can look at this guy. I feel bad for her because, I mean, the thing is, like, I've had loads of shit moments on TV. Well, arguably, every time I've been on TV, it's been a shit moment. But, like, you know, you loads of the time you do, it's just it's a bad day, the words aren't coming to you, you kind of, you're a bit distracted, and then suddenly you're presented with the stuff that you're not quite on top of. And then the idea that one of those moments would then be viewed, got you know, dozens of millions of times and endlessly oh, analysed. You just be like, no shit, because she's, a rich, she's very, very good at her job. That's what she's famous for in... The rest of the world. I bet. I bet. Yeah. Um, Helen Lewis did an interview with GQ and mm -hmm. they decided that they were going to put some of it online in video form as well as the print version. Um, and she wrote recently that that had been seen 25 million times. What I find interesting, I mean, look, the, the, the problem with Newman's sort of approach is it definitely has that kind of hectoring, progressive tone to it. The, it has very much a sort of you can't say that kind of attitude to it. Um, in the tone and I think mm. in the questions, which really plays it. I mean, they want you to, they're dying for you to be that person, to be that caricature of a progressive, I think. Yeah. And, and I think she, she falls into it. Um, but actually, funnily enough, reading, because re I'd read the book before and then I saw the interview and then I went back to the book to take out the notes to use, you know, for what we're doing here. Actually, I sort of thought her criticisms of him were more valid than I thought watching the video when I went back to the notes. Because a lot of the time, which he will say something about women are typically this and men are typically that. And she would come back with, well, that's not true because some women are also bossy or competitive. Mm -hmm. And he's like, I know, I'm not saying every instance, I'm saying the data in general, you know. And, and of course, you'd naturally side with him on that because like, of course, just, you know, just saying, oh, September was cold doesn't mean that global warming isn't happening, yeah, right? Yeah. You can't, yeah, yeah. whatever. And yet, honestly, when you read the book, you're like, it's not actually, you know, you, no. you actually pretty much do believe that there is a fundamental characteristic to men and women, which is completely different. And you sort of betray your true kind of species and gender self if you are not like it. So actually, 
she doesn't deliver it well, but her fundamental, I think, criticism of him or the underlying criticism that is being made of him is actually the correct one in that interview. And his response is profoundly disingenuous. Well, this is something to talk about when we get into the books, which is saying what he thinks is actually quite hard because he is not, I think, as consistent as people think. And maybe he's being deliberately disingenuous about that, that there are things that he says in the book like you said, that are more, I'd say, more conservative than how he comes across in that interview. Mm. And then there are things he says in other interviews that are very different from what he says in the book. Yes. And so you Which wonder. more extreme. Yeah. And you mm. wonder in, in, in cases like, what is he, what does he really think? What is he holding back? How conscious he is of different audiences and not labeling himself. We'll also talk about that. Like he's, he's kind of, he's very angry about being labeled mm. with things that seem to me, you know, fairly, fairly clear. Now, look, we, I think, have a, uh, you know, we could do a, just to keep on going, Peterson style. Um, <laughs> just for two or three hours. Um, but because we are not public intellectuals and we perhaps think that uh, concision is, is good, should we sort of stop there on the brink of the, the, the publication of 12 Rules for Life? Because I think... Hopefully what we've tried to do is get a sense of like who he was before most people outside Canada had heard of him mm. or outside certain online spaces as well. Um, and so now you've got a kind of sense of like the man and his ideas and his personality. <laughs> and, then, and then what are we going to do in part two? Well, we're going to take a look at what he writes in these books. And I think the story that we're going to find is a profoundly revealing one for all sorts of reasons. And it's a story really about Darwin. <laughs> it's about the kind of tyranny of creating binaries and then just trying to define the entirety of human experience through them. Yeah. And then it's about a kind of psychological breakdown that happens in himself and in other people if you start saying that you as an X, in this case man, must be the following things and how that comes crushing up against the reality of what it is to live a normal life. So it's, it's, it is a tragedy told in four parts. It's a wild ride. <laughs> exactly. It's a wild, wild it's ride. ride. You wouldn't approve of wild rides, right? Because you haven't grounded yourself in order. But nevertheless, <laughs> we are not bound by his rules. Have fun, but not too much fun would be his advice, <laughs> I think. So we will see you next time. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, it's great to be back. You can see all our sources in the show notes and give us feedback via Patreon or at Origin Storycast on the platform I insist on calling Twitter. Patrons, part two of the Jordan Peterson podcast is already in your inbox right now. If you also would like to become a patron and get these episodes one week early, you can sign up online and you'll get lots of gifts and goodies for doing so. And we can do all this research without the support of our Patreon backers. So, so thank you very much if that's one of you. And if it isn't, but you'd like to join up and get us to a Peterson-esque 80 grand a month. <laughs> <laughs> little, little way to go there. Little, little way. Go to patreon.com slash originstorypod. You'll get advanced episodes, bonus episodes, merchandise, and early ticket access for live events. We, we uh, hope you enjoyed that. We just some very good bonus episodes, I think, between the seasons. I thought they were good anyway. <laughs> And one, of, and one of them was mostly Ian, so, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that was your least favourite. <laughs> I was like John Peterson of being a good listener. Uh, Cheerio, guys. See you next time.
Origin Story Season 4 is written and presented by Ian Dunt and Dorian Linsky. The lead producer is Anne-Marie Luff and the audio producer was me, Simon Williams. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. Music is by Jade Bailey and art direction is by James Parrott and Misha Welsh. Origin Story is a Podmasters production.